motion regulation is just like reading or riding a bike or walking. They're milestones in a child's life. It should be something that we value just as much as them being able to like go through a recital. This is the Curious Neuron Podcast, where we take a compassionate approach to science-based parenting. Join us as we break down the science of child development and parenting into digestible and applicable advice. Welcome. Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of the Curious Neuron Podcast. My name is Cindy and I'm your host. I will be joined by my co-host Marion in just a few minutes when we interview our guest, Dr. Tina Montreuil. Tina is a professor, psychologist, and a researcher here in Montreal at McGill University, and she studies emotion regulation skills in children. It is one of those episodes where you will need a pen and a paper. So if you're in the car right now, bringing your kids somewhere to school, to daycare, or going to work, or you're out for a walk, um, you're going to have to listen to this episode again because there, there are so many um, bits of information that you could start applying today. Um, and it's one of those episodes that are powerful. I, just interviewing her at the end, I felt so confident that I could tackle any emotion that my children had. Um, so it's it's a great episode. I'm excited for you to hear it. And we're, I'm going to move on very quickly to the episode. But first, there were a few things that I wanted to cover. I would like to thank the Tannenbaum Open Science Institute here in Montreal at the Neuro for supporting the Curious Neuron podcast. The Neuro is the first health sciences institution in the world to commit to open science, an approach to research that ensures scientific knowledge is shared widely and transparently. Thank you to the Tannenbaum Open Science Institute. Secondly, I have a little surprise for you. So I know that the winter months are coming along and here in Montreal, it's getting cold. I find fall much harder um, to adjust to than full-blown winter with like minus 30 weather. I don't know why. Um, I, I think my body's just not ready for it. Um, but I wanted to uh, thank you all for listening to the podcast and to thank you for leaving a review and a rating for this podcast. So I will select three people next episode and give you a coffee on me. It's my way of giving you a hug <laughs> from from this podcast and from my home here in Montreal, wherever you are, um, I will choose three people and that is my way to say hi and thank you for listening to the podcast and for rating it. So don't forget, just go right now, leave a review and a rating and I will choose three winners to win a Starbucks coffee on me. If you aren't already, please follow Curious Neuron on Instagram at Curious underscore Neuron. And you could follow the podcast itself on Instagram at Curious Neuron Podcast. Um, if you want to keep up with the episodes that we have and um, find out who's coming up. You can also visit our website at CuriousNeuron.com and click on episode 40 of this podcast. You can access the links to the research articles that I'll talk about in a moment, as well as uh, links to Dr. Tina Montreuil's lab, the research that she's currently having if you'd like to participate, and direct links to her articles as well because they are packed with information. Before we begin, I just wanted to talk a little bit about emotion regulation skills. So basically, those are skills that children acquire that help them manage their emotions. And um, this is a really big topic. It's one that I'm the most interested in, that and play, as you know, if you follow me on Instagram. And 
I wanted to bring something up that is brought up during the episode, I think a couple times. And the take home really, I mean, I actually, I think there are a lot of take homes from this episode. But what I would love for everybody to remember is that emotion regulation skills, thus managing your, your child, managing their emotions, are acquired. They are learned. It is, like Tina says, a milestone of some sort where, you know, like riding a bike where we say, wow, you did it, congratulations, and we celebrate. The same thing applies with emotion regulation skills. We need to work on them. We need to offer them the tools. And it's not easy because as you'll hear from the episode, there are lots of factors that play into it. One thing that I wanted to bring up uh, in case you'd like to look this up in research and in case you are a clinician listening to this is the tripartite model. And basically there are sets of parenting behaviors that help a child develop emotion regulation skills. And this tripartite model talks about three things. So observation modeling, which is, you know, us modeling our own emotion regulation skills to our children, parenting practices and behavior. So we've spoken about this with um, helping families thrive in a previous episode here at the podcast and um, your parenting style. So that balancing that warmth and connection with boundaries is a type of style that is conducive to a child developing those emotion regulation skills. And thirdly, the emotional climate of the family. It's an important one. I have a study here that I will link on my website. Um, Let me just see. It's by Morris and all published in 2007 in the Social Development um, Journal. And they talk about um, the impact of the emotional climate of the family. Uh, This is reflected in the quality of the attachment relationship parenting styles, family expressiveness, and the emotional quality of the marital relationship. Now, now, whenever I work with parents, I um, often get parents who say, you know, my child is misbehaving or acting out or having lots of big emotions. How can I help them? And what's interesting is I don't kind of zoom in to what the child is doing. I zoom out when I do this. And this is maybe something that you could do within your own home as well. I have the parent journal, and I think I've mentioned this before in the podcast. So I have the parent journal. I ask the parent to journal what's going on in the child's environment and what's triggering them. And they also have to take a step back, actually many of them. So first we step back to try to see what's happening in the child's environment. The next big step back includes us, the caregiver. How are we responding to our child's emotions? How are we um, providing them with tools? How are we connecting with them? How are we regulating our own emotions? And then you take another step back that includes everybody in your household. How are others in our home regulating emotions? How are they um, communicating with their, ch- their our child? So the other caregiver, parents, both parents do matter. Um, and that's really important for us to do. We tend to narrow in on our child's behavior and say like, I, I don't want them to do this anymore, but we really have to take this big, big step back to look at everybody in the environment. And there's lots of research to recommend this and to suggest that this is important. The second thing that I'd like to mention before we move on to this interview is, again, it's acquired, it's a skill, but that there are brain areas that are involved that need to develop. So we can't expect an 18-month-old to regulate their emotions. It's going to take time. It's going to take us being consistent with how we're offering tools and helping them develop this skill, um, but also that their brain has to develop and mature. And there are parts involved in the amygdala and the ventral striatum and the prefrontal cortex. 
These parts of the brain, you know, such as the prefrontal cortex, are involved in thinking, and that's connected with the emotions, which is connected with the reward-based learning of part of the brain, which is that ventral striatum. So all of that plays into it. So it's really a complex thing for the brain to learn, but it can. So if you have a child right now who's really struggling with managing their emotions there's a lot for you to do but grab that notebook take notes from today and then start a plan start by taking notes and 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 dr tina montreuil talks about this kind of observing and she gives you questions that you should be asking yourself Um, observe their environment and like i said take you know a really big step back to look at their environment and then after that try to think of which tools and again dr tina montreuil will give you lots of tools that you could apply Um, and this will hopefully hopefully put you on the right track to help your child uh, learn how to manage their emotions. And unfortunately, I have to say that a lot of it falls back on us and how we are managing our emotions. So with the holidays coming up, I I tend to think of um, families that are gathering. And I know from my own experience and I know from hearing from you guys and families that I work with that there could be two different types of family gatherings, right? The, The the joyous one with you know games and everybody's getting along and it's a beautiful family night versus the families that are arguing and yelling at each other and can't get along and so one is <laughs> regulating emotions and the other one highlights not regulating their emotions and having lots of arguments and things getting out of hand and we we want to make sure that we show our child that you know you can have emotions but we could regulate them as well with the holidays coming up it's a great way to, to show them this <laughs> let's move on to our interview with dr tina montreuil don't forget to leave a rating and a review for the kirsten podcast and if you like access to the research studies visit kirsten i will see you on the other side Welcome back, everyone, to the Curious Neuron Podcast. I am here with my co-host, Marion, and today we are interviewing Tina, Dr. Tina Montreuil from McGill University here in Montreal. Welcome, Tina. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. And I have to say, I am so excited to speak with you. One, because we went to school together at McGill many <laughs> moons ago. <laughs> and two, um, you study emotion regulation skills. And I, that is the number one question that I get from parents. It's about regulating ourselves. It's about knowing how to help our children regulate themselves. We're going to try to cover all of that today. Amazing. Yeah. So let's get started. Um, can you give us a little bit of a background in terms of your research at the Care Lab at McGill University? Yes. So essentially, um, I I'd worked for many years, as you know, more in in terms of like you know reactive or curative. Like you know, you basically are helping people learn to regulate themselves once there's been once there's been a major life issue or major life transition so they've been diagnosed with a mental health issue and that really started to uh, sort of run into my mind in terms of uh, in speaking with these youth uh, realizing that a lot of them had antecedents it didn't just start like a few moments before they basically got diagnosed there was a there was a life history there was a life course and what got me to really wanting to develop childhood anxiety and regulation of emotions lab care was to essentially really, instead of being more curative, have a more of a um, sort of preventative approach. Gotcha. Can we instead, almost like immunization, can we mm-hmm. give tools, strategy to children, yes, but also families, so that maybe we can offset 
change maybe the sort of evolution, the trajectory on which children and families find themselves to maybe hopefully avoid experiencing a more severe mental health issue. So that was really the, the motivation behind uh, then creating or developing with the team uh, care lab. I love that. It's such important work. And I'm I'm curious to know, is your work mostly with the parents or with the children? Because when it comes to ER skills or emotion regulation, we're looking at both and perhaps even mostly parents. Yes. So that's a great question. So it, it, initially, it was really working with the children. So our work was really school-based. So the premise was implementing school-based mental health practices and literacy in uh, the context where children spend the most time in a day, school, right? So it really was child focus. And then because of course, we're working with a young age, uh, you know, elementary level mainly, and preschool, we discovered that, you know, we needed, you know, we needed the insight and the input of parents. And then digging more into the literature, it became evident, not only from the literature, but also what we were observing. So our, us seeking literature was driven by what we were observing clinically working with the families, because they were the ones that were basically rating their children when it comes to regulation, right, for the most part. Um, and so it really started like, uh, you know, um, becoming clear that, as you know, maybe for some people, it's clear, we know, um, but it's also clear that you know there is definitely a dynamic between how parents they themselves regulate their own emotions how they deal with hardship and adversity especially if they're unplanned and uncontrollable um, and how children will also uh, be the receptacle or will be the sort of like the output of what parents sort of manifest or or model Um, and then that got us into looking a little bit more into like the mechanisms or the processes by which that transfer or, or kind of sort of the, that intergenerational transmission mm. occurred. Mm. And this basically brought us to what ultimately we're doing now. And by default, this became clear for us. Um, and also in doing some work at the Jewish and with uh, some uh, sort of like special child psychiatry programs and working with families, it became evident um, that it had to be something more systemic. Um, which aligns with the literature, right? We need to not only work with children, but we need to work with their parents. And maybe we can talk a little bit more about the processes later. Mm-hmm. So how about we bring it down now to the foundation of it or our talk today? What are emotion regulation skills? Yes. So emotion regulation is essentially uh, this capacity for an individual uh, to deal, deal mainly, yes, with emotions, but what we really focus on in emotion regulation is being able to manage or deal more difficult uh, emotions, like the emotions that trigger in us, um, they, they stir us, they, it's either anger, it's either sadness. Uh, so of course, you know, you're not going to really be talking about emotion regulation in a context of happiness per se, mm. but more so, let's say I'm faced with something, I'm faced with disappointment, I'm faced with rejection. How am I able to deal with that? And how am I able to, in some cases, just to sort of accept what's happening and not catastrophize what's happening, sort of like normalize? And how am I able, in some cases, to sort of shift my pers- my perspective mm-hmm. so that it helps me sort of modulate or tone down mm-hmm. that high surge of energy, negative energy, what people often refer to it uh, in, a, in a situation. So essentially, emotion regulation is best tested in a situation, an adverse situation, and in a situation where there's some form of adversity, right? Yeah, got it. And now with everything you just said, I'm picturing a one and a half or a two-year-old. <laughs> and zero <laughs> skills <laughs> to navigate all these big emotions. So how, how do emotion regulation skills develop? What At what age do we start seeing this start to develop? And, and what is our role, I guess, as a parent? 
Yes. Yeah, so I guess there is different terminology, but one could really sort of even postulate that from the moment we bring baby home and we put them in their crib and how we respond to their cries, like how quickly or how, how slowly we respond to their cries will already be the foundational sort of construct for how that child will learn to regulate. So for example, one could, you know, one could say like, if I'm a mom and I'm very tense when my child is, is crying, because I have a difficulty dealing with the cries of a child. If I get, you know, depending on how agitated I get, how maybe I get more on the sadness spectrum, maybe I get more on the anger spectrum, because I feel like I'm a bad mother and I'm not able to nurture and calm my child. I think all these things leave sort of like, like little, little like markers. Mm. And, and it's right. not like I always tell people like, you know, like I too, as a mom, cause I'm a mom, you know, I too have moments where I'm probably a bit more explosive than I should. So it's always transactional. It's not the fact that I did it once. It's how repetitive and continuous it is with time. Mm. And if it's more often that more punitive in my response, mm then supportive, that really becomes the focus of attention and of concern in some cases, right? I think that's important for parents to hear that part because I'm think I'm picturing, you know, new moms or new parents and you have that baby and you haven't slept <laughs> and you have that moment where you're just kind of like, ah, like I can't, I don't know what to do with you. Like, what do you need from me? And I, I hope that parents understand, like you said, it's not about that one-off, you know, moment that it's really the, 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 the continuing that kind of response. You, you want to make sure that it's not only that response that you have. Absolutely. And this yeah. is what we might talk about that later, but how also in terms of like what kind of system, what other, you know, it could be a partner, it could be a husband, it mm. could be a family member, but how critical it is as well to maybe also surround ourselves that social support so that mm. the child is also exposed to a diverse type of reaction. And mm. that also plays into self-care, which most likely we'll talk about as well when it comes to parents, but you're absolutely right. So I think the first part is to not catastrophize or just think it's, you know, like it's an all or nothing thing, you know, like, yeah. because it was a phase in my child's development where it was more difficult then that's it. We're doomed. And it's not right. necessarily the case. Mm -hmm. So now from birth, the way that we're responding to our child's emotions is already planting the seed and already starting to build their emotion regulation skills Absolutely. as they're getting older, closer to 12 months, their emotions are getting bigger than just crying for for milk <laughs> so now it's even harder I think as a parent and that's when I started seeing myself reacting a little bit more because they're they're having these bigger emotions and they're arching their back and they're trying to you know like get out of your arms and stuff and that's harder to regulate in terms of a parent absolutely so you're absolutely right that um in practice um and I guess it also backed up by research hmm. where we end up hearing from parents that there are more more disturbance is either when the child becomes mobile, as you're saying around 12 months, yeah. and also verbal, maybe around mm. 18 to 24 months when so it, I, I have a lot, especially like, oftentimes fathers are, you know, kind of mentioning that, you know, now that you know, the child can be oppositional or can refuse. Mm. Um, that becomes more, you know, I was always very calm, very, very regulated. But now it seems that you know, when my child is resisting, um, verbally, even um, that becomes very difficult for me to regulate my emotions. So one of the first things we have to do is that, and that's what we, we study in our lab, it's called, you know, there's many terminology for, but we refer to it as parental emotion socialization. So really the way I, I had a talk a couple of years ago that we did with the guilt parenting uh, series, and I called it, yes, your reaction matters. And the premise of that was to say that essentially how you respond 
to your, your say your toddler's tantrum because you told him that he could not have your phone to play with <laughs> will have an impact, not necessarily in that moment, but again, it's increments. There, there's like a marker that's left. So if you're if you're basically getting very sort of like angry at your child's distress, so I'll I'll, t- I'll put it into extremes. Angry versus, for example, you know what, Validina, you know what? Yeah, of course you're upset. Like mommy took away the phone, and phones are fun. You know, so depending on the reaction that we have, that's going to basically set the stage for how children themselves are learning. You mentioned it before, like all this surge of energy. It's, it, it's a lot. They don't have terms, labels. It's a novelty. It's intense. So the more we are able to be nurturing and sort of like, sort of like saying, you know what, that's okay. Like all those emotions that you're feeling. Yeah, they're scary, but you know what, that's okay. And it's, it's normal that you would react in that way because something was taken away from you, right? Like imagine in our, and I think a lot of the times it's starting to, you know, trying to imagine the equivalent of that event in our toddler's life to what it would be or represent mm. in an adult life. Yes. What if I someone love that. made me something and then took it away from me, <laughs> right? When I really liked it. Yeah how would we react as parents and as, as adults? So it's banal, it's just a phone, but for our children that in their world, that is significant. Mm-hmm. So I think the more we can try to immerse ourselves in our child or child's world and see their perspectives, call it, call it empathy, call it, you know, the ability to be more altruistic, it's key. And this is why also, like, I mean, I think it brings in also the aspect of distraction, like of, of, of being sort of like um, emotionally available, because if I'm sort of like working on my computer, I'm, I'm on my, in my mind as a professional mom, and I'm sort of like not disconnected and really channeling what's going on with my child at the time, it's going to make, and I'm not a bad mom because I yelled. I'm just not in the right mindset to be able to assist my child. I'm not attuned to what they're experiencing, right? So this is so this is why it's so important for us to be able to also sort of like set our limits and all that self-care thing that we might talk about later. And the reason why I'm saying that is because I want parents to know that, you know, sometimes we act, oftentimes we act in a way that we don't want. It doesn't make us bad parents. I will have to tell you that as a therapist and as a family psychologist, I've rarely, rarely seen bad, like intentfully bad parents. Hmm. Most parents do things because, you know, they don't either don't realize it or they don't have the right tools. Hmm. So the reason why I'm mentioning that is for that purpose, that people know that sometimes we're not doing the right thing, but it's not, it doesn't make us a bad parent. And I, I, I love that you're saying that because a lot of parents will have the guilt around, I just yelled at my child, especially this past year. The most common you know email to me is, is I, I'm yelling more. I have less patience. I haven't had time to step out and do something for myself. So it goes back to self-care, which we will talk about. And it's 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 been a very difficult year and a half. And people are not responding the way that they want to with their kids. You're in the home mostly with the kids and and you don't have time to kind of regulate yourself um so it's been a tough year for that it's been yeah i just wanted to add um or maybe explore that a little further because we are all the three of us are professionals and i think a lot of, of 
women and fathers who are watching are professionals. They are trying to to work and also take care of their children and they have the best intentions and they, they want to do both. And how important is it to really um, like set aside time where you feel like, okay, now I'm going to really be attentive to, to them because work and everything can just build up, build up, build up. We can always be doing more and more and more. And yet like our children in these like developmental periods where we need to be attentive to their to their emotions and their feelings. And it's a lot like I, I know personally, I had to just make more space for that because it's slow. It's these slow, like put on your shoes, we're going outside. <laughs> and like th this is the time I have to go outside. It's only 10 minutes and you're taking so long. How do you how do you make space in your profession and also for your for your kids? Yeah, and how hard can that yeah, be? <laughs> that's such an important point. And um, I completely agree with you. And I will say, and I, I have been in my talks and workshops disclosing it, like, just so you know, I am a therapist, I'm a psychologist, I'm a researcher, I, I, I bathe in these themes all the time. And mm -hmm. yet, I will also say in, in great transparency, it has been a much more challenging year. The reason why I disclose it is to just for people to know that even people that are the best equipped and know how the right. know how doesn't always translate into like actual, actual concrete, you know, uh, steps. So that being said, so this is what I'm doing. I'm normalizing. It's, it's been yeah. a very challenging year yeah. and I'm validating that your experience has even been experienced by myself and other professionals that I know are in the same situation. Now, that being said, I talk about, you know, in one of my talks, it's not necessarily on parenting, but this is what I had to do too. Once I realized that there was an issue during this period where it was really the root of it was really that separation between work and family life. Um, there was none. Uh, and none that maybe institutionally on the exterior that was necessarily offered to me. So this is something that, you know, necessarily I don't control the decisions that are made outside of me. But I do control, this is one thing we teach parents, I do control what happens in my family. So the reality is as a parent is that we cannot, especially as women, we know women have been the most, the professional women have been the most impacted by COVID. So essentially we can't, we can't do it all. Like there, there's Cheryl Sandberg that's talked about this, like you need a network of people if you're going to be doing it all. So the reality is that you have to make choices. So for me, and this, I'm just talking from me as a perspective, it's really sort of like a case by case thing. So I'm not by any means saying that you have to do this, but it depends what your goals are. For me, my goal was ensuring a, the safety and well-being of my children at the cost momentarily of putting aside some certain career goals. Mm -hmm. It wasn't forever. It was temporarily, but I realized I only have 24 hours in one day. There's sleep in there. And I think we push ourselves. And I think we think we can do 200% or give 200%. But in reality, you can't work 36 hours in one day. There's just 24. Mm -hmm. So I had to make that decision. This is my decision that I had to make and say, you know what? I'm going to put aside certain things. I communicated these things. I use a lot of self-compassion to give myself a chance to say, you know what? I'm, I'm not a less less good of a professional it doesn't change who i am as a researcher or clinician because for me i understand as well that because my values are my family if my family is not doing well i know myself it will transcend into my work mm -hmm. so ultimately by not prioritizing prioritizing my family at a, at a given moment it would have eventually had repercussions in my work anyways mm 
So what better way to just instead control that, put those boundaries and parameters, inform the people around you. There's a form of respect that comes from that as well. And then once things settle, once the kids went back to work, let's say full time to school in, in September, then you know what? Slowly, slowly the pendulum sort of shifted. And that also means, I'm, I don't know if I'm being too long, but what I also say to parents that we, in our parenting group, parenting care, we say, okay, let's start somewhere. Choose one situation that you know is conflictual. Like for, I'll be completely uh, transparent. For us, it's my, my younger one, my three-year-old, it's coming back from school. The transition of leaving daycare and getting home is a hard one. I have an explanation as to why that is. So we target that one and I plan ahead. What is he likely to do? What kind of reaction does it stir in me? And a lot of the times it's like my, sh- my child should. So my child, my child should behave this way because most kids do. And then... <laughs> And then so the whole thing about the should, right? So I've had to come parental expectations. My child is my child and it's okay. Mm. Like who he is today doesn't mean he'll be like that. And if I accept who he is today and don't necessarily perceive that as a reflection of bad parenting, but rather, no, this, this belongs to him. But as his parent, I can coach him through this. So that's the first step to really so you take a step back because his reaction will trigger a surge of energy negative energy in me, which will probably lead to me being frustrated. But my frustration is driven by the fact that I expect him to behave a certain way, yeah. but that's not who he is yeah. in the moment. That's not who he is. He's not always like that, but in this transition, this is who he is. Now I can help him through that. And so I plan ahead. Mm. So this is why you need to plan ahead. So what are the things that I can put in place? My husband put in place when we get home, the brother, what, what can we do? to offset certain things. And a lot of the time, just getting prepared for what's to come, already envisioning what usual reactions it triggers and the fact that it goes against my values. Mm -hmm. And then sort of saying, okay, what is it that I need to do? What's worked in the past with this child? Like when he's tantruming, I feel like just pushing him away because I don't like that reaction. Mm -hmm. But this is a child that when I bring him closer, when I enter in the relational, when I ask him about his day, when I just tolerate the yells and the cries for a bit, it tones him down. Mm. I think if you choose that and you can start experiencing some, some little success, that'll build your sort of self-efficacy and your self-confidence as a parent. And then you can target other things. Lastly, I will tell you the good news is that the kind of learning experience your child does in that moment through validation, through learning that he's not a bad boy in my case, um, that those emotions are very strong. He's had a rough day, you know, at the mm. day of being following rules and, <laughs> and following the group and it's okay. And at home, we can give him some time to decide the activities he wants to do. Then that transcends into and generalizes into other situations. Mm. So just also remember that the kinds of milestones that you reach in one situation can actually you know, benefit and, and sort of have an influence, an, an influence over mm-hmm. other situations as well as yourself. So it's really, you're starting to change the dynamics within that system and slowly, slowly the system is also changing. Such a great example. And I think that a lot right of people, yeah, are we taking notes? <laughs> yes, we are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I think so many parents listening can, can relate exactly to that because the transition from daycare to school is a hard one. Like you said, they've had a hard day. They've had to sit down and follow rules. And now it's like a free for all kind of thing. Right. And you mentioned one word and I'm curious, you said, 
when you try to tolerate, you know, the tantrums a little bit more, how do you define that? Because I've heard some parents also say you have to ignore them, but I have a feeling that ignore is not the same as tolerate. Can we this? Yes, compare those? that's, a, that's a very good point. So it all goes down to the emotional availability. So tolerating means that even though it's annoying me, I'm still <laughs> there. So I'm kind of like tolerating means that I'm, I'm sort of like, it's, we have that also, like say when we do, um, you know, prevention of response. So let's say if you're OCD, you feel like, say you, you feel your hands are dirty, you're gonna wanna wash them. It's like a compulsion, right? When my child, for most parents, including myself, when my child cries, it's we, we don't want the noise, right? We want, because it's distracting. So my initial reaction might be to sort of like be more aggressive or be more like, okay, stop that. So like more like punitive, like want to stop it. Mm. So that's what I mean by, by, by sort of like not responding in that way. Tolerating is that is modulating my reaction because ultimately I don't want to hurt my child. And what we also teach parents is that when we say stop crying, like, and this is like yeah. evidence, stop crying, get over it. It's just yeah. a, I don't know, it's just a toy. It's just a phone. Um, it's basically sort of like unvalidating them, like for them, that matters. So that's why it's so important to, so emo, back to the emotional availability. So tolerating means that I'm still there and pe periodically I'm going to say, you know what, buddy, I know it's tough. So I'm, I might, so I might, I'm, I'm first tolerating my reaction. So my reaction matters. So I'm basically sort of like not responding aggressively or punitively to the situation, but I'm not walking away. I'm not leaving my child in his distress to deal with those harsh emotions on his own. Mm. It's periodic. I'm letting him sort of bathe a little bit in that emotion, but then I'm still emotionally available to let him know this is normal. I'm, I'm mommy still here when you're ready. You know, like, have you thought about what would help you? And mommy said, like, maybe a hug, maybe a book. When you're ready, come and see mommy. So I'm sort of detaching myself from that. I'm, I'm, I'm tolerating the, the, uh, the, the distress that my child is experiencing. And, but I'm remaining emotionally available. I will also say to that for some people, it doesn't generate anger necessarily. It may reactivate some trauma, some history mm -hmm. of trauma in them. Mm -hmm. So we kind of want to take our child's pain away and we wish we could do that. And I find a lot of the times we end up falling in a trap. We're intentfully trying to take the pain away from our children. And eventually because we're doing that and realistically we cannot do that it then might lead to something else which might end up into secondary anger for example mm. so one of the things that we know that from anxious parenting as well like overly protective mm. overly involved almost enmeshed right we have to come to a point where this is not all negative my child's tantrum is a learning opportunity for them like he has to learn or she has to learn to deal Mm -hmm. with that surge of energy to become someone that later on can deal with difficult things. So I have to also sort of relabel what my, the, my child's distress as being something that actually, if I deal with it well, that they can actually learn. And this is what emotion regulation is. Mm -hmm. And that because you're also experiencing distress or disappointment, like not making your child avoid the candy aisle, they're yeah. learning that to deal with disappointment so that over time, mm. something that was initially difficult, they become habituated with it. Mm. They're desensitized to that. Become It becomes something that becomes normal after a while. As so, hard as it is for the parent <laughs> to go through that candy aisle and you're like, why would I go through it and, and start a tantrum yeah. in the middle of the grocery store? But you're right. You have to 
do it <laughs> and and help them regulate those emotions in that moment and i will tell you yeah. I, like last week there was a situation again at pickup that was challenging and so for me now when those things happen it's like you know the thought comes to me oh people are going to see or people might say oh my gosh isn't she the person that's like the parenting, uh, <laughs> the parenting expert? but i've learned to just really from in my mind to socially relabel that this is right now my child is having a moment and and actually by caring more about what other people might view around me i again i'm not being emotionally available to my child and i feel like experiences where i haven't done that don't actually end up the way I want them to. So I think a lot of the time our child, like what triggered that thoughts and these, because you said the tantrum in the, the grocery store and we want to avoid that at all costs. If we can, we can. But for me now, I'm at a moment where that happens. It's like, I block everything out on the outside of me, whoever's looking and it's my child and me, wherever I am yeah. and deal with it. So I think that that goes back to the parental expectations, the expectations that people have, you know, like the reality is that one of the most effective things from the parenting groups that we lead is parents coming together. It's not even the content yet. It's parents coming together who are often feeling ostracized and ashamed, as you mentioned earlier, about what's going on in their families. Mm -hmm. And they think they're the only ones that they never talk about it. And then mm -hmm. hearing other parents share their life experiences, because some people are just comfortable doing that. Mm -hmm. But those that are not as comfortable, they still get something because they're like, oh my gosh, we're not the only ones. Mm -hmm. There's really a validation and normalization. And so I think if we can sort of like set aside our parental expectation, you know, my child having an a tantrum that belongs to him. For sure, there are certain things that are from me and influences of the family, but these are learning moments. Like you said before, it's something you have to learn. Yeah. Like motion regulation, it's just like reading or riding a bike or walking. They're milestones in a child's life. We don't sort of romanticize them as much, perhaps, right? They're not like something that we're like, oh, my child is emotionally regulated. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like, but we should. My yeah. thinking is that we should. It should become something yeah. that we value just as much as them being able to like go through a recital and actually playing piano, going through a recital, you know, a soft skill is emotion regulation, mm -hmm. is being able to deal with pressure. Mm -hmm. I made a mistake while playing. I'm still passing over those negative emotions, that self-blame, and I'm continuing. So you'd be surprised how many of the things that we actually celebrate and value in our children, how much of that depends underlying on social and emotional skills. So I really do think that we should value that a little bit more. And so that means like I have a, putting, aside, I have a funny putting aside societal stigma about yeah. our tantrums yeah. and our yeah. situations. I have a funny story that, which reminded me a cousin of mine is a psychologist. And um, so I'm, I, I'm, I work in research, but I'm in the lab. So I work with, with cells and, and brains, <laughs> but so I'm, I'm interested in all of this, but I'm not a psychologist. I took a psych, a child psychology class, but all of this is, is new to me. So I'm learning as we go. And my, I'm at my cousin's house. She's a psychologist and my son is three at the time or two or three and he's having a really rough time he's you know ha um, shoes are being thrown and finally he's in a spot and he's just kind of having a moment and she's like and she's asking him do you can i do anything for you and he's like you're so annoying <laughs> and she's like oh and then she like she had this huge grin on her face i'm like oh i'm so sorry that's really embarrassing she's like no that's amazing i'm that's so like he's verbalizing his feelings and, and I was embarrassed and yet she was like no this is all and she was like this is great and like she's going through the things and she's she was helping me along but 
that's what we need is like these moments where we think we're, we're embarrassed, but our children are actually, you know, they're going through something and they're, they're figuring it out. And if we're there and supporting them, we don't have to be embarrassed about well, it. We need to change the conversation that we have as parents yes. and as a society, because even within our own family, you know, the grandparents and the great grandparents, they will label things as good or bad. You're a good girl, a bad girl, a bad boy. Yeah. You're having a tantrum. You're not sitting down. You're not, you know, you're, you're moving too much. You're bad. You're, you're having an emotion. It's bad. And it, it comes back to how we were raised and we're, you know, we were labeled bad for having an emotion. But now through research, we know now that it's so important for them to have these emotions, but it's drilled in our brain, right? So now it's drilled in us that, well, we were bad when we had big emotions. And now perhaps the grandparents of our kids are saying, hey, you know, get your child straight. They're, they're, they're on the floor and they're doing the floppy spaghetti. Like just get them, get them together. <laughs> and then you feel like a bad parent at that moment. So there's all of that. That's huge. <laughs> how do we, how do we deal with that? You know, as a parent, it's, it's a lot. Um, yeah. I'm glad you're talking about that, Cindy, because actually that's one of, one of our sessions in our, in our, in our parenting program, we actually do exactly that. We basically talk with parents like, okay, so what are the kinds of belief? And we do that mm -hmm. on, on, what are the beliefs that you have about the type of parents that you should be, or the expectations about children that you feel come from what you've received mm -hmm. or how you were treated. It's almost like an imprint yeah. that's been put on you. And some of that is very good. Like some, some of what we've received, it's not all bad, right? Yeah. Some of them are really good. So, but we have people sort of like, like spring cleaning, clean your closet, keep what is <laughs> useful, pragmatic, good, align with your values. Because the reality is that, you know, it's not because, you know, we come from a given family that the values will be hundred percent the same. Mm -hmm. Like the, the, what you value in your family, what's important, what matters, your code of life, for example, it's really something that you determine within your own family. Yeah. Some of that, I will say even for myself, some of that comes from the heritage that I've received from my family, a bit of my husband. But a lot of the things that we have now have are things that we decided mm -hmm. as our own family mm -hmm. that we want to have. Because as you were saying, like certain things were dealt with a much more punitive approach or punitive mm -hmm. way, which I don't want to have for my family. Mm -hmm. And so we actually work with parents with getting them to sort of think about these things and letting them know that it's not because I'm not embodying a hundred percent of what my family's had, that it makes me a bad parent. Mm -hmm. It's okay because it's, I'm entitled as an adult to make these decisions. Mm -hmm. So, um, and I feel like, and I, 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 not only a few, but I know when we ask at the end parents, what they found was the most useful. That's one of the session that comes back as saying, you know what, this for me was so, uh, it was like a load that was lifted off. I, I could imagine. Yeah. It really feels yep. as though, um, uh, like now, like I, I feel like I'm, I'm much less reactive with my mom when she criticizes. I understand that that belongs to her and I don't have mm. to necessarily, that's not my value and it's fine. It belongs to her. So I'm much less aggressive or maybe like con con confrontating with her when I, when I respond. Um, but that's exactly right. Like, you know, there, there are things that we now know and we are able as now adult parents to make these decisions mm -hmm. and we reestablish what these values are, what these, you know, what's our code of life, kind of like what, what, what do we live by? What's important for us as a family? And I think that's very critical to build strong family relationships because like any organization institution, we have a common mandate. You know, we're just like a little mini business. Micro <laughs> <Yeah>. business. This <laughs> is our mandate. And this is what our family lives by. And it really helps to build uh, these relationships um, together. 
I'm uh, I'm picturing that moment that you mentioned before of, of being triggered in the moment of a tantrum. <laughs> And I'm, I'm picturing this in my own home where we would have always, almost always two having a tantrum at the same time because our kids are so close in age. And, and that to me was a huge trigger. But then I would look at my husband and he'd be like, eh, so what? Who cares? Like, just deal with it, right? So I'm wondering, ch- your, your, your past and you, you, I, I've seen some of your research also on child maltreatment and, and the triggers there and how we regulate our emotions as adults. How does our past impact how in that moment we respond to our child well research actually shows that it it, it has a large impact there's a lot of sort of more like socioeconomic external factors but definitely a lot of emotionally driven factors have an impact so this is why and this kind of we don't go necessarily in that much depth when we do like group group like you know kind of group programs because you know but if you have worked with a therapist one-on-one these are the kinds of things that we might go a a little bit deeper in because definitely um you know this is why self-care uh sort of taking care of ourselves self-compassion it's so critical because most of us that have a difficult time being self-compassionate a lot of the times it's because of a lot of the times of the ways that we were dealt with. Maybe we were raised by very critical parents. They meant well, but they were critical. And so these kinds of like, I would say these audio, these part, these MP4, MP4 sometimes but MP3s are replaying <laughs> in our brain. It seems as though it's coming from my voice. Like I'm a bad parent mm-hmm. or um, I can never deal with, with difficult situation. I always lose my cool, mm-hmm. but really, you know, they're more like, you're a bad person. You're never able to deal with anything. So there were a lot of the times there's, there's patterns that we've heard that we've internalized. We've come to believe that they're true. And therefore they, that's what internalized, like internalized stigma or internalized anything, internalized trauma becomes that, you know, we really see ourselves as that individual. So that this is why I really think self-care, self-care is many ways for people who haven't experienced trauma. It's just like, I have a busy schedule. I never make time for myself, mm-hmm. you know? To be, I always tell people, you can give, you, our children need our emotional availability. Mm-hmm. You can't give of what you don't have. If you don't take time to fill, I always describe our bodies as like, you know, our emotional capability as, as a vessel, as a glass. Yeah. If my glass is not full of emotional availability, if, if I'm always drained, mm. parenting requires so much. It's no wonder that, you know, we are we're either yelling, we're avoidant, we're distant, we're unavailable, we're some, we are, we sometimes are, we're not. So we're kind of like inconsistent in our parenting style. So this is why, like, even like I tell parents, like, I'm a, I'm a single parent or I, I'm not a single parent, but, you know, I've been single sometimes. My, my husband travels for work, but point being is that I've sort of like now socialized my children in the importance of self-care. So sometimes at night they'll be like, oh, mommy, another book, or can you lie down with us? And I'm like, no, I need to either go exercise or go read a book that I really wanted to read or go do a little bit more work, for example, if I a need boundary. to. Exactly. Boundary. Now, and, and I've said, like, now I'm like, I'm very transparent with them. I'll be like, okay, so here's the mommy. You know, last, last week on Wednesday, that was mommy without self-care, okay? <laughs> <laughs> this is mommy with self-care now which one do you want this evening that's so good 
And I might throw, oh, mommy, you go, you go do your thing now. That's okay. <laughs> now they know, like they know because it's become, you know, this is, this is, this is how it is. So I really have that. It's part of our value. If mommy wants and daddy want to be calm, we need time for ourselves. Mm-hmm. And they understand that it's not selfish. Mm-hmm. It's because we want to be better parents. And we tell them we, to be a better parent and an available parent to you. Mm-hmm. I need time for myself. Mm-hmm. So, so we're working, to, we're on the same team. I even give representations of team. Like when you yeah. let mommy, you don't, you don't tantrum, you don't, you don't freak out when mommy goes away. <laughs> that's kind of like passing the ball to mommy and letting mommy, you know, deal with the ball at the time, mm. but we're on the same team mm. and we get it like two, three, they get it. The moment yeah. they're verbal and you've nurtured that in them, they get it. Well, yeah, I was just going to say, we joked at the beginning about how this was our self-care, yeah. <laughs> like the three of us, we all have, we all have kids and it's Saturday morning and we all decided that this is an hour that we felt would fill us up. And it does. At the end of this, I feel really like I can I tackle my kids again. I feel like I have more energy. I feel like, okay, my kitchen right now is a disaster. We made pancakes this morning, but I, I, you know, put myself in another room. I've closed the door. I'm not thinking about that. Like those are the types of things we talk about having our own little corner somewhere. You can just go and ignore the mess, yeah. not feel like you have to do anything. And you're really reading your book or podcast or watching funny YouTube videos, whatever it is, just have really carve out the time because your house will always be dirty there will always be things that you need to do absolutely like carving out that time and it goes that to the yes it goes to the expectations we set for ourselves like a mom a good mom like a good wife should be this this and that and it that's yeah. why it's so key that it becomes you and then we talk what you were describing Marion is like a lot of mindfulness so when I'm taking that time aside I'm not like tomorrow I should do this or I should be doing that. No, no. Right now, like I let go of the dishes that you're being mindful of right now, this is where I am. And I'm connected to now mm-hmm. because that's the thing. Like that's the one also like an insidious uh, trap is that we carve out time, but it's not, it's not as quality time, right? It doesn't, it's like having a, the bad charger for your phone. It, it just charges. <laughs> but if you have the right charger, the right mindset, it really refills your battery. So just be careful of that cautious as well, that when you do carve out time, because if it's not really mindful, it will also not sort of like condition you in the right way to do it again. Cause it'll be like, okay, I did it and it didn't work out. But how, and I've often, if you go down to the nitty gritty, like when I ask people like say, what was going on when you were like, say in your bedroom, oh, well, I was making the grocery list and yeah, that was not really self care that you were still focused on something else about your family. So just be yeah. cautious of that little trap there that mm-hmm. sometimes slips in. Do you see differences in your research with parents between the moms and the dads in terms of their emotional regulation skills? I'm curious. (laughs) One of the things I will tell you um, that is most difficult in research is getting access to dads. Mm -hmm. Um, So we pull pull out pull uh, put out calls and we really try to get parents uh, parents so both mothers and fathers represented. And I have a colleague that specializes uh, in Quebec City in father. Uh, mechanisms of, uh, of, uh, of, of mental health and children and it's very challenging so I think that's one of the most challenging things but then if I look at it from once we do have the fathers um, uh, I would say that um, it, it's 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 very unique I, I wouldn't say that you know necessarily men are better at regulating their emotions than not I think sometimes um, perhaps um, men have not been maybe sort of 
you know, I think there are definitely, gen, let's call it gender or, 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 or sex biases. I think a lot of the times, you know, we, we, we sort of um, have expectations for our boys to maybe less expressive, or we do know from men, for example, in some studies, maybe more in, in, in clinical samples, but that definitely men tend to not be as skilled as women uh, to label emotions. And I don't think that's a sex difference per se. I really feel it's more a genderized. Again, I, I think it has to do with our socialization mm. of boys. Mm. Um, if we assume that they shouldn't cry, like, you know, stuff like, you know, we even some of our questionnaires and research we have, you know, to basically determine punitive or supportive, like boys don't cry mm. uh, or these types of things. Um, I think then that's something also that, for example, I think, you know, um, a couple months ago, I did a talk on Women's Day, International Women's Day, and the World Health Organization also took that 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 stance where we have to, yes, build stronger women, um, and we already do, but I think we also have to maybe help raise more uh, boys that are attuned to their emotion and where we give them the, the gender right to also be sensitive and that it's okay to feel like human beings, not just women, can yeah. feel shame, disappointed. Yeah. And I think it's a lot of, it's almost like the, the aspect of the iceberg. Yeah. I think a lot of men, we've taught them to suppress yeah. a lot of the more vulnerable emotions. And I think that probably, this is just my, it's not evidence-based and I don't study this, but I really feel clinically that it has to do with why sometimes men on the surface of the iceberg as secondary emotions, manifest greater difficulty with anger management mm. because I don't give myself the right to feel vulnerable. I don't give myself the right to, to feel sadness. Mm. Then the secondary emotion to the primary one that's on, on underneath, you know, the, the iceberg on the top is going to be anger. But a lot of the time, if you look at men that are angry are just men that don't have that space or weren't taught that space mm. to be vulnerable. Mm. So um, that's my take on that aspect between them. Um, mothers and fathers but if there are fathers listening what i would say is that you have such a critical critical role uh in developing or helping your children raise emotion regular or develop emotion regulation so if you are solicited by either participation in parenting groups uh or any research programs like just understand that it's not just a mom driven thing it's really something that's transactional, which means that there's something that a father provides mm. that it's it, it will never be able to be replaced fully, um, maybe necessarily um, if there are fathers present. Mm. Um, but it could also be a grandfather. It could be an uncle. It could be, you know, it could be a, a big brother. It could be anything, right? But I think there's something really nice about being able to uh, bring in the influences of both father and mother, or at least fatherly figure and motherly figure. Mm. And I think you touched upon that at the beginning, right, where the relationship in the home, so the home environment has an impact, I believe, on the child's emotion, emotion regulation skills as well, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So even let's say in, in couples that are, you know, same gender, um, the way the partners or the couple behaves mm. uh, with amongst each other, so that the climate of the couple, how satisfied we are or how we deal with <laughs> conflictual situations mm -hmm. with our partner you know, I always tell families, you can say certain things to your children, but children learn most from what they see and they observe. Mm -hmm. 
So if you are someone, uh, a lot of the times I'll tell you, even in my own, if, if a lot of the times I'll tell you, if we see our children a bit more agitated, immediately I stop and I tell myself, okay, is there something between my partner and I mm-hmm. that is undealt with? Is there some tension there? Is there some communication issues? And a lot of the times, not all the time, but a lot of the times there are. Hmm. And, and I think it's just that tension that maybe we carry amongst each other that essentially plays on the dynamics. So think about it, the dynamics in a family, they're not seen. You can't, you can't see it. But, you know, we're, we're relational beings and these dynamics, these, these nonverbal things, I would throw our actions, the look, um, <laughs> it's almost like, um, if, if think about it, we can't smell it either, but think about it like fragrance wise, you know, when something smells pleasant versus unpleasant, mm-hmm. these tensions, they're, um, they're not, they're not, you can't, you can't see them, but, but they're, they're yeah. And they affect the dynamics and, and the system. Mm. So a lot of the times, like I think uh, what we want to do is when we're dealing with family or children issues, sometimes, like I said, it, it does, it is a child issue. They have to learn, but sometimes it's to question ourselves as well. It's not always necessarily, but ask ourselves, are there some things between partners, couples that are undealt with um, that perhaps we need to look into that might be trickling down to our children and definitely we see that how peer pair sorry uh, siblings deal with each other also a lot of the time transcends with the kinds of patterns they see we we know that as well from you know um families where there's intimate partner violence for example we know that the kinds of patterns of behavior between the partners trickles on and has an impact or at least increases the risk mm-hmm. of those types of behaviors replicating itself when the children grow but also we do see that more difficult sibling or rivalry uh, between the children as well a lot of the times. So what advice would you have for parents if they are feeling a lot of tension within their relationship? How, like, what are the steps to dealing with that initially, either uh, therapy or other types? So for me, yeah, so I think self-care, like, I don't want to, I don't want to go to couple therapy. Our kids will have to be babysat you know i think it's always more difficult for families that are lower you know so lower social economic status because maybe they might not be able to pay for a babysitter so maybe like try that's why the social network is so important like maybe do you have, do you know do you know someone that could take on the children maybe do an appointment or can you do an appointment during the day when you're at work for example take your lunch time you know be creative find ways but i think to me that's also self-care like it, it's it's something that you know yes it'll benefit our children but it'll benefit us first like we need to take care of our relationship as parents um and even maybe you're separated and it's still not going well and you could use a mediation because the way that you're dealing with situations when you know your children are at one home or the other um it's spiteful it's toxic and you know it and and it's and it's not really doing any good to your children so you know whether you are still married or you're in a, in a situation where there's a separation or a divorce but you're still co-parenting i think there's always value to seeking help like psychologists like myself are there for you and i think you know i always tell people and i think now the covid the pandemic has certainly helped that because i think we now realize that, you know, okay, forget what's going on, we need help. But, you know, the idea, even before, if you are, you have an ailment anywhere, your ears are hurting, your eyes, you're not seeing well, you're not going to second guess it, you know, you just need to make the time for it. But you're not going to feel ashamed of going to see your optometrist, right, or your audiologist. So we should not also feel ashamed of going to see a psychologist. 
Um, psychologists are there for our emotions, our brain. Our brain is part of our body. You would know, Mary, and Cindy, you would know too, right? <laughs> I think we have a lot yeah. to do in really making access to care. I, I've told it, it's, there are resources out there, but I think we need to do more to uh, promote um, and destigmatize access, accessing care. Yeah. We know we did a study recently where, you know, with mental with healthcare workers in a, in a Montreal hospital where we asked them, how many of you had re- access to resources? 80% of them said we had access to mental health resources to prevent burnout. Mm. Yet we asked them, how many of you actually used it? 20% of people used it. Mm. And we asked them why most of it was like, well, I'm afraid that I'll, how I'll be perceived at work or how other will view me as weak, for example. So we have, it's one thing to invest in resources. It's another to also invest in literacy to basically destigmatize access to care. Yeah. Right. I've heard of private companies now, which are very progressive in that way. They, They make time within the work day that people actually meet with wow. they, they have someone on staff who's a psychologist mm-hmm. or and they're they're helping them through these things not just professionally but personally because they recognize that but i think that's in a very very small percentage of <laughs> private companies yeah. and then i mean often the cases it's 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 expensive to to seek care and you have to have a job and so like if you're a single mom and you're you're you know you're not working and you've got your kids like <laughs> This is where the people who really need the resources. Absolutely. And I think that that's something where I hope in the long term, people will start to appreciate yeah. that we can come together as a society to fix these. Well, there's AEP, so it's like an employee, 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 so EAP, employee assistance program that a lot of the times, if you look at how many people have plans and how many people actually use them, almost no one uses them. Mm. So there's that. Right. And for families, I always tell them, let's say like, you know, if you can find something, I know like, for example, a UCAM, they have a, the, the Centre de Service Psychologique, it's in French, but they offer low cost therapy. McGill, our McGill Education Counseling Psychology Clinic offers low cost, sometimes even free of charge, depending on your, your economic status, mm. um, provided by yeah. T4s for, for, for psychological services. You know, put yourself on a wait list at the CLSC and seek other options. It's like as if imagine, like, say, if you had an aggressive um, physical condition, you know, even depending on your your socioeconomic status, of course, it makes it more challenging. But you would be driven a lot of the times to do something. We need to do something. Yeah, I feel I'm not sure. This is maybe maybe I'm wrong and I, I, I could be wrong. and I am wrong at times. But I feel like when it comes to our mental health, we don't necessarily have the same motivation or drive. I think underlying that is these false, these things that we've internalized about, it'll make me weaker, it'll yeah. make me, and it's, it's you know, would you say someone that has a heart problem that they're weaker? You might say mm-hmm. they maybe aren't taking care of themselves as much, but you wouldn't, you wouldn't ostracize them because they're seeking help, they have that condition. So I still think that, you know, there's a lot of things that are out there. You just need to just, just speak about it. Speak to, speak to, your, to your family doctor, speak to a friend, you know, like we, like you know, we all have people that we know, and maybe someone knows of someone. And sometimes, just speaking about it will get people to say, you know what? Like on Saturday morning, how about I take your kids and and you go like take some time for yourself? But if we don't talk about it, we don't let it out in the open, we can't solicit support. And this is why speaking about our mental health and our our struggles, yes. our marital issues. You know what? Like. That's why we need to just be like, you know, that's why it, it goes back to what I was saying with the scene of, of my child tantruming, you know, like at some point, you know, like what really matters, you know, what others think or how my life is going. 
when I see someone's kid is is having a tantrum, I don't think, I just think, you know, like I've been there, I know that. And like, I, I would never judge. So most people aren't Absolutely. judging is one thing. And then the other thing is, as a mother who maybe has gone through something like that, and if you see another mother struggling or father struggling, we can also offer those things, like you said. And, and if you're listening and you, you know of someone who is struggling, that's where we should need to come in and, and offer to take kids or, or, you know, to be a community because that's where, where we, we can help people. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, I agree with everything you said. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm happy that you used the word weak to feel weak because I had a friend who during the pandemic was taking care of two young kids at home that were staying home, was working and the boss just didn't care that the kids were home. It's like you have a deadline. It's going to it's it needs to be done by 2 p.m. Yes. Kids running around just the stress. And after months and months of this happening, she's like, I'm going I don't feel well. I'm not mentally well. I'm not physically well. I haven't eaten. I don't take care of myself. I don't sleep. And I said, why don't you just ask for time or see somebody to get help, a, a psychologist? And her response was, my coworkers are going to think I'm weak because they're doing it. But yes. we don't even know what they're experiencing on their end, where you just think that they're perhaps looking at you that way. And they might be. I don't know. But that word weak. And I was like, you're not weak. You're, you're human. <laughs> you're, this is a normal human like reaction or response to everything that's being put on your plate. So I, I'm, I'm glad that you brought that word up because I think a lot of people will be, will be able to relate to that. So I think, you know, during the pandemic, a lot of like a lot of schools, of course, but a lot of companies even, uh, you know, just basically like, I guess someone working in a school was married to someone working in an industry at an accounting firm. And all of a sudden I'm getting asked to do these, these workshops, but what comes out after is that essentially creating also social awareness like we need like it doesn't necessarily need to be an expert that comes in but there's all sorts of, of resources for 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 like um for companies or what have you uh from the made available by the mental health commission of canada which is an organization that i really i really value um that that we can do what can we do within our work environment to just basically again destigmatize uh, sort of demystify these false beliefs that people have because yes that person that you were referring to needs to tell, tell herself you know what like I need it I'm not going to care about what other people think but how much easier would it be for everyone and perhaps even one day ourselves if everybody if universally we worked at basically sort of having or shifting our mindset mm. about what it is to be struggling just as parents with mental health issue or just you know like with adversity in general right mm -hmm. um so i think uh there's a lot that we can do i think that there's a lot that we can do and it doesn't necessarily come with a cost is what i'm telling you mm -hmm. it is if the whole collectivity or community comes together at a work environment or a work site and says you know what we're going to change this we're going to make this better we're going to make it more accessible for people to feel like it's okay to seek help and we're going to be more also attuned to assisting others in need yeah. um then I think uh, it's like the analogy of putting on our mask first. I tell people first start by caring for you. Instead of saying, oh, that person, that person, how can I get better? Is that an analogy as well, right? Instead of changing my partner, what can I do on myself that might actually make him see that I'm doing certain things that will necessarily just inspire him to want maybe the calmness that I've gained or these kinds of things that the more being more mindful, be more centered, more grounded, we're going to start collectively influencing other people because mm -hmm. everybody wants to be well. People want that. So instead of like judging other people, ostracizing each other once against the other, or I'm strong, you're weak. 
Um, how can we just focus on what can I improve or what can I maintain if I'm in a good place? How do I maintain it? Um, and then I think that will will really help us collectively come together and just just be stronger people, be, be stronger societies for our children. That's a motivation as well. Our children, we want them to be well. I I love that because I, I think with in relationships, it's so easy to 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 think and see everyone else, what they're doing. What's my husband not doing? What's my, what are my kids not doing? What are they doing? And, and it's like, okay, but what am I, what, what's bothering me? What's triggering me? What's, and then taking like a step back and it takes time, but eventually you get to this point where like, okay, I'm going to be, I'm going to be where I want to be. And then they will, <laughs> then I can deal with that. Yeah. But at the same time, when parents get discouraged about, oh, it'll take time. And, oh, I, I didn't want to yell and I yell. I always tell parents, don't take like a victim stance. If you did something wrong, like don't say, oh my God, I'm such a bad parents and then you almost become like you're almost looking at your child to provide your reassurance don't go there because children they're smart as they grow you know they'll they'll also take advantage of you with that but you take an adult stance and you say you know what i was wrong i was wrong i should not have yelled and i did yell um and so um how did it make you feel i apologize that was really not my intent and you know what i'm committed for you because I love you to really learning to change that and you know what son or daughter you know like things are challenging life is challenging but you know what change can happen and mommy's committed to that daddy's committed to that and then we become also examples of you know like I fall but I can get up in a in a, in a strong mature parental way mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. it's like well but it's also limits we can't just be I'm so sorry I'm such a bad no we don't take that victim stance. We take, you know, I was wrong. I own up to it. And you know what? It's okay for you as well to make mistakes. And look, we don't give up. We're a family. You know, we're, we don't, we're, I'm an individual. I don't give up. I continue working towards always improving myself. And that teaches children such a key, a key value that, you know what? It's not necessarily the outcome that matters. It's the efforts that are putting into something. And that, you know, it really teaches children after that as well, that everything is a process. It's a process, right? And think about it. You, all three of us here, perhaps parents also listening, how much of us are jobs? How long have we trained to become specialized Mm. in that skill set, right? But parents, (laughs) we have this ability to procreate most of us and no one really teaches us to manage the most difficult job there is out there. You know, basically creating balanced and sort of like uh, future humans that will, you know, contribute to society. That's a really tough job. I don't know if you understand that, but I would tell parents like, you know, in in a certain extent, like it is hard, but no one's prepared us for this. So essentially think about it that way. How long did you have to train to become an accountant, a doctor, a plumber, whatever it is? Well, think about it. You've had to train to acquire this. And even if you say it was passed on as a trade, you, there was there's still a learning process that was involved. So think about it as well as you, Mary was saying, it is difficult, but like it, anything we do is difficult, right? Anything we do is not difficult, but it requires an effort and a commitment to achieving a goal. So your parenting, it's difficult. You know what? You fail, you get back up and you continue. You can you can improve and you can become a parent that is actually feeling and, and, and also feeling self-competent, but is actually also witnessing things in their children that will eventually make them feel that, okay, this aligns with what I wanted for my family. It's not perfect, but I'm seeing evidence of my efforts in my children. 
Marion, am I the only one who's pumped to go like be with my kids right now and be like, yeah. go tantrum, <laughs> have a tantrum, I'm ready for this, let's go. <laughs> Tina, with all your research that you've done in this area, what would you say are the key take-home messages that you'd love parents to, to know about from research? Yeah. So first of all, I always tell parents, I've been saying this since I've been leading care lab, but it's putting on your mask first. Like, I think we understand the, the, like, you know, the, when we were on a plane, like the avial representation that it doesn't make any sense that we put on our, our child's mask first, because if we run out of oxygen, we're essentially not going to be well. And by not being well, we're not going to be able to help our child either. So we're increasing our chances of providing more suitable and more adequate care to our child on a plane by first putting on our mask. And the same is true of us as parents. So we're the gateway to our children achieving their own personal ER. And for that, we need to fill our cups Okay, think about it like and this is based on like, uh, you know, the, the sort of the vulnerability bucket um, analogy. So essentially, the more opportunities you provide yourself, you know, to basically offset whatever is coming in. So you're in a period where you're in, you're an accountant and it's tax season. Well, then you need to do a lot more self-care to offset all the stress that's coming in. Always keep your glass full of emotional availability because then any tantrum or any stressor will be outshadowed because you have the availability to deal with that demand that your child is placing upon you. Mm -hmm. The second thing is that do know that, you know, you are a model. So it's not necessarily what you say to your children. You, you must be exemplary. So you must show your example. And that means that it's not just means I want to caveat here. It's not like I have to be perfect the first time. No, as I just mentioned before, you can also be an example of like what it is to make a mistake own up to it maturely, securely with self-compassion and then lead by showing that there's just as much virtue and value in a second chance. You know what? I didn't do the first time. We would have wanted the first time. That was our plan A, but there's always plan B. And you know what? Sometimes plan B is actually even more of a celebration because it's harder to get up from a fall than it is to get it right the first time. So we can lead through example, even in our failures. So the importance of that relational aspect with our children, right? That we're strong in our parenting and who we are. So that's why we need the self-care, which is the previous step. Mm -hmm. And I would say, lastly, we just talked about it now. It's mastery, right? Leave room for growth for you. And the more self-compassionate you become with yourself and allowing yourself the space to become the parent that you wish to be, again, with those expectations that are adjusted, right? Not like the perfection. Mm. What it is that with the with as a professional woman, of course, I won't be able to maybe like do as much as I, if I I'm, I'm a homemaker, but those are my goals for me at this moment. And the more you give your space the room for growth and mastery, that also transcends into our children. Like the little boy that comes home that day that's having a tantrum, if I deal with it well, and I understand that he's on a path of growth and mastery, it'll help me view the tantrum very differently in that moment and obviously modulate my reaction differently, but also leave him space. And that also means that leave him space to deal with the tantrum phase disappointment it's his own personal growth or her own personal growth path so we're there to really as coach you know it's not doing things for them it's that coaching them through it and when they fall and they feel hardship also allowing them the space to learn that they can to deal with it they don't need to rely on everybody else 
in all cases to deal with certain difficult uh, situations. So acceptance of mistakes, promoting effort over outcome, and obviously adjusting our expectations for ourselves but as well as for our children. I think if you take these three things, they'll pretty much encompass everything else that you need to do to get on the right path of being a content, self-competent, happy parent. And happy parents, you know, obviously lead to children also mm-hmm. being happy because they see us being happier and more content. Before we let you go, um, right. I have a few questions from parents um, that uh, they asked this on Instagram. Yes. The first question is, is it normal that your three and a half year old needs you to self-regulate all the time? Okay, so there's two things here. The word normal. <laughs> yes. uh, so it all depends your point of reference. If your point of reference is your child, um, then it could be normal. If you're, if, you're, if you're referencing your child, you're comparing him to others, it may not be. But that doesn't mean because your child, maybe you see other three-year-olds that are not acting the way your child is, it doesn't necessarily mean that there's a problem with your child. And actually, sometimes I will tell you, if you have that mindset, it will probably become a problem for your child. So essentially, um, I think you have to look at, you know, like what's going on, like really what's going, what, what's triggering it. And sometimes it's, it's very big. So that's why I always say, start small, start, start small and start targeted. Like, are there patterns? Is it always the same situation? Mm-hmm. Almost like be, be, become your own investigator. Just mm-hmm. observe, observe what's happening. Are there specific times of day? Are there specific situations with specific individuals? Um, did you also do experiments and like, for example, if you react one way over, over the other, mm-hmm. does that tend to create a different reaction on your child? So I will say for some children, if your child is, for example, has a neurodevelopmental disorder, maybe being dysregulated at three is normal because research show that some children, you know, that are artistic, for example, do present with more difficulty regulating themselves. So I think it's important in that moment to take this shift, the, the focus away from the what others say and or are or what they're like Mm -hmm. and really trying to understand what's going on with your child and then if you see that you know he's not always like that and there are certain situations that are uh conducive to him being less regulated or more dysregulated then can you basically try different things and shift different things it could be your reaction it could be what you your requests are when let's say what triggers it and then see what happens and then if you see something positive, then you want to replicate that. And at the same time, if you see that certain things trigger these kinds of dysregulation, mm-hmm. then actually you want to basically reduce that. So if you're criticizing, if you're getting angry, you want to sort of like increase validation. You say, you know, it's going to be okay. I know these emotions, they are scary, but you know what? They become less scary with time. Reading books as well. There's tons of books. I, I'm sure I know, Cindy, you have a lot. You make a lot of recommendations on your website as well to read through with our children. Maybe we don't have the vocabulary, but some great authors do. And they can guide our, our interactions with our children through reading books and giving some good feedback. Got it. Thank you. So, And the other two, I think we've kind of covered. One of them is how do we handle frustration with a child? But I'm assuming we follow the steps that you told us in terms of understanding them where we know where it's coming from, but now it's about regulating ourselves and that to teach them the skills, I'm assuming. I would say every single time, uh, if I would say there was only a caveat, if you staying there and trying to tolerate leads to violent acts, mm. like for example, where you become rough, mm-hmm. or physical with your child, or even like verbally, uh, abusive or aggressive, then I would say in that case, it's best to just move away. And, and okay. not, so I would say in those cases, not doing anything is actually the right thing to do. 
Uh, otherwise, sometimes you, you want to take the lead. No, I'm the, the, but sometimes there might be situations where perhaps if you are in a couple that one of the two is just more skilled, you were describing before my husband's this, yeah, way, I'm this way. So if there are certain situations where you feel like your husband is better or your partner is better at dealing with it than you are, then maybe you want to arrange it that way that you have some sort of a code, right? Mm-hmm. Um, until you figure out your way through this. So, but essentially how we deal with frustration, I would say avoid at all costs criticism, avoid putting down. And again, avoid comparing either with another child or children that you know, your child is that way. And the first step to them becoming more regulated is feeling supported, validated, and that actually they are, they are normal. It's just a phase that they're going through because who's going to want to change if they feel that they're abnormal. True, good point. They're gonna continue doing that, right? Mm-hmm. And the last one is, it's harder for me to regulate myself in response to my partner than my baby. <laughs> Again, we, we I think we spoke about the dynamic between couples in the home. Um, I guess it's about working on that relationship and how you communicate too around the child. Absolutely, so that's why I think one of the first things that we do when we become parents is that we were very romantic and spending a lot of time together and then we have children and of course, temporarily, it'll change our, our couple habit. But one thing that's critical is to see, okay, like I, you're not neglecting your child because you're having them be babysat by a family member or a babysitter one day a week or one day every two weeks or one day a month, right? Mm-hmm. So give yourself the space to really nurture your relationship because before you were parents, you were a couple. Mm-hmm. And after becoming a parent, you have a different hat, but you remain a couple. And actually... Research shows that stronger couples are usually also um, also create or that again those dynamics. Think about like I gave you the the analogy of the scent, right? But it's the same thing. Couples that are are more healthier and, and better together and less passive aggressive. Mm-hmm. There's also a better climate, family climate mm-hmm. in general. Mm-hmm. So prioritize. Maybe your self care plan includes taking care of your relationship. Thank you for everything that you share with us today. Uh, I know that I'm excited and I took down a lot of notes and I'm probably going to take more notes when I listen to it again. Um, Where can listeners um, find your research or, you know, is there any way that they, I'm going to put up all the links to your studies that I I mentioned today and that we mentioned. Um, Is is there a way or resources that they could um, access through you? Yes. So we have uh, our web, our lab website. So www.care.lab.mcgill.ca, but I think you will share the email. So we have resources there under parent and teacher resources Mm -hmm. for you to consult. We've tried to make most of them in English and in French to cater to all Montreal and families elsewhere. Uh, We also have a a website currently that's only in French. It's called uh, Nos Emotions. So www.nos Emotions. So N-O-S-E-M-O-T-I-O-N-S dot CA. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it has um, great resources only in French currently, but they include elements from like all the all the age periods, like developmental age periods, preschool, all the way to adolescence. Um, there's material in there from our program, Healthy Minds, Healthy School. There's some parenting care as well in there. So that those are other resources that you can consult. And otherwise, you know, profile at McGill, a lot of our, our, our studies are posted um, on our, on our profile but also the website so there's a lot of tabs there so just kind of navigate the tab (laughs) everything you need thank you so much for taking the time out of your schedule to speak with marion and i today we deeply appreciate it i hope we get to chat again soon thank you so much it was such a pleasure (laughs) being here today i hope you enjoyed today's episode don't forget to leave a rating and a review and 
have a chance at winning one or three coffees next episode. And just to give you a bit of a teaser, our next episode will be a conversation between Marion and I. We will be talking about toys and play and educational toys and educational apps and what that means, according to research, obviously. I hope you have a wonderful and beautiful day. Bye. Thank you.